Thank you, Rachel. That was a beautiful song. So, I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. And I want to draw our attention, you know, this time frame between Christmas and, and New Year's just sort of, you know, seems to be a, a time of uh, well, getting things back in order in our houses, of course. But, uh, but also it provides us some uh, extra time, I think, for some reflections. And I want to draw our attention uh, to the concept of Jesus in the Psalms. Jesus in the Psalms. And because I believe it really helps us reflect even more so on his greatness and his glory as our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're going to actually start in Psalm chapter 2. And we're only going to be doing it today. But I'll be giving you uh, some uh, thoughts that you can take with you and work on on your own. But you've probably heard about the Messianic Psalms. These are the Psalms in which we read them. And we think, oh, this is talking about our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, well, which ones are they? Now, at first, it seems it might be a, a pretty simple kind of a question to answer, but actually, it's more complicated than we might think. I mean, usually we start by considering the Psalms that are actually quoted in the New Testament about Jesus Christ and think these are obviously Messianic Psalms. But then we also want to add to the list uh, those Psalms that just seem overwhelmingly to be pointing directly to Jesus Christ, regardless. Because the language that we read in the Psalms is speaking about something much far, much beyond itself in its present context. Or maybe some of the Psalms have terms in them that, oh, this, this applies to our Messiah. Or maybe the circumstances that the Psalm is talking about really seem to fit the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then our list gets longer and longer and longer, which Psalms are actually Messianic Psalms. And often they're arranged in two groups. Uh, one group are the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms that are about the life of Jesus Christ, his personal life, and then those Psalms that talk about his kingship that he follows in the line of David. And so we end up, if we follow this methodology, we basically end up with 21 Psalms. Okay? So there are 21, at least historically speaking, most people would say that there's a list of 21, and I'll give them to you later and we'll talk about them. However, one wonders as you read through the book of Psalms, <clears throat> is this really sufficient that 21 of them are Messianic Psalms? I mean, we remember what our Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Luke 24 when he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So might it actually be more accurate to say all the Psalms are Messianic Psalms? Although perhaps they're not all Messianic in the same manner, but in a variety of ways. It's true that Christ is the ultimate extension of David, and he is the ultimate resolution of all human aspirations. And, and being so, Jesus is really the absolute satisfaction of every single psalm that we read. The satisfaction is only found in Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and we'll begin this morning. Well, Lord God, we thank you so much for your word that you have spoken to us and that you have preserved for us. And we pray this morning that you would guide our thoughts by the power of the Spirit, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. And we pray these things so that you, Lord Jesus, would be even more glorified in our minds, in our hearts, in our worship, and in our life, especially as your people as a church. 
Amen. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this morning, which I've entitled, The Anointed Son to be Kissed, which will become obvious at the end of the psalm. But please turn your Bibles to chapter 2 if you haven't already, and uh, let me read it to you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So the Advent hope contained in this psalm, or the Christmas hope contained in this psalm, is that the Lord God is going to establish his Messiah as king over all the earth. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It's declaring the truth that the Lord God will establish his Messiah as king over all the earth, because the Lord God reigns sovereignly over it. The outline of Psalm 2 should be pretty obvious and clear. Maybe even your edition of the Bible marks it out for you. There are four stanzas of three verses each. But the first half in verses 1 through 6 is really about how the Lord God reigns over all. Oh yes, in verses 1 to 3, we have the kings and the peoples of the earth in constant rebellion against the Lord. But then in verses 4 to 6, God just sort of sits up there and laughs at them. And then in verses 7 through 12, we read about how the Messiah himself is declaring the truth that God has decreed about him, that he will inherit the nations. And then finally, the psalmist himself closes the psalm in verses 10 to 12 with then what is the application is to be wise and to bow the knee or to kiss the sun. And you know, Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms. Maybe it is yours as well. It's quoted so much in the New Testament. But Psalm 2, just to give you a little bit of an understanding of the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2 actually together form the introduction to the whole book of Psalms as we have them. And together they announce the two major themes that you pretty much see in every Psalm in the whole Bible. The first one is Psalm 1, I would entitle it the most blessed man. And Psalm 2, you could also entitle the most blessed Messiah. And that's really what the book of Psalms are about. Who is the blessed man? And who is the most blessed man? Who is the most blessed than the Messiah in Psalm 2. In fact, in some Hebrew manuscripts, even Psalms 1 and 2 are fused as one psalm, and they make up the introduction. Psalm 2, just like Psalm 110, is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament because Jesus is the anointed one that they're talking about, the Messiah, the King who would come. Now, of course, when we look at Psalm 2, we originally have to think about its context when it was first written. And uh, we don't know a lot about that. But uh, in the context of Israel's kingship, it's important. It was clearly messianic, though, as you read this psalm, that it's not just talking about 
the king that would be following in David's footsteps, but it's talking about eventually that ultimate king. Now, the specific historical situation is unclear. We read later in the book of Acts that this psalm is attributed to David himself. And perhaps it was uh, is used in times of international turmoil when people were worried about what's going on in the world, maybe not unlike today. Possibly it was used as a coronation psalm when a king was crowned and the people had new hope. But anyway, it gives us a message of hope, a hope that continues throughout all of the psalms, if you read them, that our Lord God remains sovereign and He will bring order by His anointed one who will subdue all the nations and the peoples and He will establish righteousness in the earth. And this psalm is really asking for the Messiah to come and to fully establish His kingdom. The Lord God will establish His kingdom on the earth through His Messiah, through David, David's, uh, David's heir who would reign over all the earth. That's the hope of the prophets. That's what the people of God longed for and we still long for today. You know, all of their kings that followed even after David, Solomon and the continuing, even at the best, even at their best, and some of them were pretty good kings, they fell far short of the ideal. And so too are our experiences, our leaders. No matter how good a leader may be, that leader will fall short because he's a sinful human being, like we all are. But it's not going to be the case when our Lord Jesus Christ takes the throne. And we've already been, begun to experience that as his people, of him reigning over our lives. And we know he is a good and gracious king. So I believe we really need the message of Psalm 2 at the end of the year, at the beginning of a new year, to get perspective on what's going on in our lives and in our world. So let's take a look at Psalm 2 together. The first half, very clear, the Lord reigns over all in verses 1 through 6. But it begins that we see in verses 1 to 3 that the kings and the peoples, the kings and their peoples of the earth rebel against the Lord and his anointed one. That's in verses 1 to 3. And then we'll see in verses 4 to 6 that the Lord who's king of heaven and earth holds them all in derision or contempt. So let's begin with the first few verses. Let me read it again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist is really asking, he's not expecting an answer from us. He's asking this excited question, why is there so much commotion in the world with the kings and their leaders under them and all the nations and all the peoples of the earth? The psalmist asks the question. It's a perennial question that we've all been asking all the time. Why would they, how could they reject the Lord God as ruler over them? On the original context of the psalms, probably some opposition to David or opposition to a Davidic king who's on the throne in Israel. But that in and of itself at the time is opposition to the Lord God himself. It could be referring to a very particular time or king, or it could be written to go even beyond that to speak about the fact that this is always the case in the world. It's an animated question. No answer is expected when it's asked, but it's just expressing this indignant astonishment about why are the nations in a rage? Why do they plot, literally murmur against God? How dare they? Who do the people of the world think they are anyway? And why bother? 
murmuring against him because everything is under his control. The discontent is expressed in the words of verse 3. This is what they declare. It's foolish on every account. Let us burst their bonds apart, speaking of God and his power, and cast away their cords from us. Because God is a good God. They want to burst the bonds of God's and, and cast off his cords as if, they use this language, as, as if they're yoked like oxen. As if they're treated like animals by him. They desire to be released from the sovereign control of God as if he is somehow enslaving and oppressing them. But that's just an excuse because they're really just jealous for the power about that's the whole thing. And the fact that God's intention is that he's going to give all power to his son who will be the king and he's going to take it away from them. This is intended for application obviously way beyond the specific reign of David. It includes all the political aspirations of mankind in rebellion against God and his laws. You know, it seems like everyone wants to rule the world. And it has its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, both in his first coming and in his second coming, this psalm. The great historical example is about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in Acts chapter 4, verse 25 and following, where the kings of the earth are clearly identified as Herod and Pilate. And the peoples of the earth are clearly identified as the Gentiles and the Jews. Pretty much everyone. Acts 4 says, Who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, speaking of Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers get, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now as to David in the psalm originally, it would eventually be to David, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, and there's a whole lot more to come. But we think about how this rebellion is constantly being carried on uh, throughout the earth, for it, it certainly is and has been. It's common. It's a natural sinful disposition to seek to be the ruler of all, to have as much power as possible. And much of the political and military activity in this world is simply an uproar that's opposed to God, and it's ultimately a bunch of vanity. Nations and leaders' actions are all ordained by God anyway for His purposes and His actions, but they, through all of that that He grants them, they just seek their own power and glory and to steal it away from the one who gave it to them. It's seen in leaders and peoples who disregard God, asserting their independence from Him and that they don't have any accountability to Him. It's seen in leaders and in people who resist righteousness and decide they're going to live out their own ideas. It's seen as leaders and peoples work against the gospel that's been revealed to heaven and how it's spreading throughout the earth and they try everything they can to stop it. It's the universal sinful desire of each person to attempt to make this world their world. The desire of every single person to make their life really only their life when it really belongs to God. In the final analysis, 
when you read these indignant questions at the opening of the psalm, you realize that these nations raging, these nations murmuring against God with one another, trying to figure out how they can escape from His power and from His rule and His righteousness, it's really nothing other than saber-rattling before heaven against the Lord and against His Christ. And it's only going to lead to their own destruction because He always completes His holy will. And that's the answer the psalmist gives immediately in the next stanza, that even though the nations and the peoples rage and want to assert themselves as being so great in this world, the Lord God, who's really the King of heaven and earth, His response every day to their actions every single day is to, in their constant daily rebellion, is to laugh at them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord sits enthroned in heaven. He observes everything. He rules over heaven and earth. And he laughs in derision. He ridicules them in their arrogance. And he does it all righteously before all of heaven, the angelic host and the redeemed who are there. He mocks the peoples of the world and their leaders in their futile assault against himself as if they're important. Now, of course, his laughing, this is an anthropomorphism. God is not some sadistic, malevolent ruler, but he rules over all. And he will speak and rebuke and terrify his opponents in his righteous anger and holy wrath at the appropriate times. Whenever he determines he wants to do so. This is the word actually in verse 6 that he speaks when he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. So as they speak in verse 3, we're going to throw off your cords. The Lord says, well, I put my king on the throne. And the words then get recited by the Messiah in verses 7 through 9. That's part of his answer as well in the final statement from the psalmist himself in verses 10 through 12. In verse 6, the Lord emphatically declares, I've installed my king, I've enthroned him. Zion is a hill in southeast Jerusalem, refers to Jerusalem. It's holy because the Lord set that apart long ago as his dwelling place as promised in Deuteronomy. But the Lord's going to have the final say in all political matters in the earth. So why keep raging against him? He's going to conquer with his rise and wise and righteous purposes with ease. They cannot, can never be thwarted, his purposes. So many fulfillments we see in scriptures of this already. So one, he did this with the installations of the anointed kings of David as they continued to be crowned. Until, of course, all anticipating the crowning of Christ our Lord as King of David. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 16, God speaks to Nathan, the prophet, who then speaks to David about his descendants who would be following after him on the throne and speaking about that one descendant who would come. And starting in verse 13, speaking about that, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, and with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Of course, immediately speaking about Solomon, but speaking far, far, farther down the road, as it's interpreted in the rest of scriptures, this promise in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, that there would be the son of David who would come. He also did this in the cross of Christ when he installed Jesus in heaven and exalted him. By the cross, it is said in Colossians chapter 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, speaking of Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and here's the quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, quoting 2 Samuel 7:14, which we just looked at, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These are fulfilled when Jesus was installed and enthroned in heaven, and he will do it again when Jesus Christ returns and he will be installed as the Messiah over this earth. Revelation 11:15 says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the hope of Christmas that the Lord God reigns over all. Yes, the kings and the peoples of the earth are going to constantly be in rebellion against the Lord and His anointed, but the Lord God, who is king of heaven and earth, just simply holds them in derision and laughs. And so the psalmist, he's neither surprised nor worried. And we're to take up that same position, that same attitude to live with confidence and hope in this world. There's nothing in the political sphere, that should ever surprise us. Nor is there anything that should ever really ultimately worry us. The psalmist makes it clear that all who do not recognize Yahweh as the only true God now will soon enough. For the King of David, the Messiah, is coming. And so we pray with the same hope that the psalmist prays with in the writing of the psalm, Come, Lord Jesus. The peace on earth of Christmas wishes that's what Psalm 2 is about. And it will come true when the Lord God establishes His Messiah over this earth. The second half of the psalm then, now in greater detail, talks about the Messiah who will reign upon the earth. In verses 9, 7 through 9, the anointed himself declares the decree of God regarding himself and His universal reign that He will have. And so, He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here the anointed messianic king to come speaks and he enlarges upon that promise of 2 Samuel 7 to him and the decree of the Lord today means from the day of coronation of the king onward. Today means the day of coronation onward. So the coronation, originally speaking, or historically speaking, was a time when there would be a renewal of the relationship between God and his people, when a new king would be crowned. And the king, you see, as we've already read, would be like a son to God. 
and God would be like a father to him. Perhaps in the original setting, it was a really troubling time for the people, and so it was a time of reassurance when this was written. But the today regarding our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah King, that today took place all throughout his ministry, his becoming incarnate, taking on himself our humanity. The today for him from Psalm 2 is all throughout that ministry. This verse of this psalm, verse 7, today, is quoted at his baptism. It's quoted at his transfiguration. It's quoted about his resurrection. And most importantly, it's quoted regarding his coronation in heaven in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 5. See, Jesus Christ is the true Son of the Father. He's the true King of the covenant people of God. And he deserves our worship and adoration. He truly reigns from heaven currently for all the good of his church, building his church as the gospel is preached throughout the world and worshipers are being made. So then verses 8 and 9 continue to declare what's going to become his by the decree of the Lord God Almighty. He's going to inherit all, inherit all of the nations to the very ends of the earth. They'll be his possession. He will rule over all the earth's inhabitants and destroy all his enemies. And he will make all his opponents bow down before him. This isn't hyperbole. Our Lord Jesus Christ will be heir of all things, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And the promise in Genesis 49, 10 will be ultimately fulfilled. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. You see, there's a coming physical reign of Jesus Christ on this earth with his saints. And we refer to it as the millennial kingdom. It's a time when he's going to establish righteousness in this earth, and he's going to destroy and subjugate all the rebellious peoples. It's a most fitting and glorious conclusion to the history of the world as we know it. Because it's going to provide vindication to God, vindication to, the, to Christ, vindication to his saints, us, in this world, vindication in society, vindication by true justice and peace that we've never seen but we've always longed for. And then, after this great conclusion to world history, it will open up into a new heavens and a new earth forevermore. So be encouraged because all this promise of what Jesus Christ is going to inherit in verses 8 and 9, inheriting the world and ruling over the nations, this Psalm 2 glory, if you will, he shares it with us. In Revelation chapter 2, it says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And, when, and as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the conclusion then to the psalm is in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist summons now all kings and all peoples to show wisdom in light of these truths and to be blessed. For we read then, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Behold, all who take, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So now finally, the psalmist speaks to the whole world some hope. A hope that's certainly undeserved based upon what we've read. He speaks to all the world in light of all this truth and offers the only hope, but it's the most blessed hope as we all know. It's very simple, submit now, kiss the Son, and receive grace and eventual reward with the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, on the final day. Or, you can submit later, and you'll be forced to honor the Son, and you'll receive wrath and eternal destruction from the very same Anointed One. So the decision, of course, which the psalmist is calling for is one that shows forth discerning wisdom rather than arrogant pride. Worship and serve Yahweh, the only true God, the holy triune one, now in reverent awe. Kiss the Son of God in homage as the anointed one, the rightful heir of the world and all things to come. See, here is the gospel of God in Jesus Christ announced beforehand in Psalm 2. I mean, each of us in our sin is in rebellion against God in heaven. Even though you're not a king, we have a part in verses 1 through 3 because naturally we all think we're kings. The Lord God has appointed Jesus Christ not only as the coming conqueror, but first of all as the Savior of the world. And if you haven't done so already, Psalm 2 is asking you to submit yourself now to the cross of Christ for he paid the, for the wrath of God on your, against you on your behalf, for the forgiveness of your sins and the fact that you could gain a true hope of eternal life. Be wise and be blessed. Kiss the Son, worship him, acknowledge his authority, accept his reign over your life, that you don't own your life. It belongs to him. We don't know when this final day is going to come and when he will decide to satisfy his holy wrath so take refuge now, because then there's not going to be an opportunity to take refuge. See, the hope we have of Christmas, of peace on earth, is also a victorious hope, a great one, when the Messiah will reign over all the earth. Revelation 19, 11 and following says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this will bring in the final stages, the full, eternal, full blessings for his people when the Lord God establishes his Messiah and he will reign upon the earth. You know, Psalm 2 has a special place for me because I had planned to preach it on a particular Sunday about 20 years ago or so, and it happened to just be the Sunday after 9-11, 2001. 
So it was an amazing time for our church family and a time of blessing in the light of that travesty. To meditate upon the truths and the hope that is contained in Psalm 2. We need that same hope with us today as we go into 2021, and we need the hope of Psalm 2 until it's fulfilled in its completeness. And the psalm is full when Jesus Christ reigns again. You see, he inaugurated the kingdom when he came. And it's expanding currently as the gospel is being preached throughout the earth, and it's soon going to be consummated with his reign upon the earth, and forever we will worship him in heaven. He will exalt himself, and he'll exalt his anointed one, God will, Jesus Christ. He'll anoint, he'll, he'll exalt his saints from throughout all the nations of the earth. So, an application to this, I would say the greatest application is missions. It always is. After worship and seeing who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing reigning from heaven, why his church is here, it's missions for the greater glory of God and, and of his church in the world now and the world to come so that we have more worshipers for Jesus Christ. Now, as we finish the psalm, I want to, you notice I began at the beginning talking about Jesus in the psalms. And so maybe someday we'll go through a series I put together on that. But there's a project here that I want to put before you. You don't have to accept the assignment, but if you choose to, I think you'll be blessed. And so you should have, you should have handouts from this morning in the back it has everything there printed for you. If you didn't get one, you can grab one on the way out. So you don't have to write it all down. But just let me go through it for you quickly. So this is, uh, this is how I encourage people to read the Messianic Psalms. It's a project, I think. It's a good project uh, for this time between the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. And so it's easiest to start, I think, with the most recognized Messianic Psalms, the, the ones that are most celebrated, the ones that are the most obvious, because when you get into the harder ones, you end up scratching your head all the time. But these will, will immediately be helpful for you, and it's good training ground to read the rest of them. So you'll see I put up, if you go to the next slide, these are the 21 um, most common, uh, or the 21 standard, if you will, Messianic Psalms. And so there, you can see there are 11 in the kingly category, and there are 10 in the personal life category. And so just take these psalms one at a time. Don't do too many. Just do one a day, okay? something like that. Um, but this is how you do it. You simply, first of all, read through, if you go back to the previous slide, read through the psalm multiple times and try to get your mindset in the historical framework one time, and then try to flip over and get your mind in the messianic fulfillment mindset the second time. You won't get everything the first time you read through it, but just do that multiple times. And then... Most likely, the Holy Spirit's going to start revealing things to you, and you're going to stop in awe and wonder at the glory of God and Jesus Christ in this psalm. So stop. You know, it's not, the goal's not to finish. So stop. And then third, offer prayer and praise at these times, using the Scripture itself, maybe even using some of the New Testament fulfillments or interpretations that you discover along the way. And then, fourth, recognize the value of what you've just discovered in the Scripture. These amazing truths about how you just found Jesus in the Psalms. And you're amazed at the history of redemption and how God has put it all together in His wisdom and glory. And then number five, go tell somebody what you just discovered. They don't have to believe you, just tell them how exciting it is. You know, what a joy it is to be 
to gather as a church family and worship and fellowship. And I, I hope you take up this assignment, take me up on this assignment. And if you do, you know, please let me know and share with me some of the discoveries that, that God is leading to you in his psalms. So we're here to celebrate and worship and to rejoice because Jesus has arrived and he's the anointed son to be kissed. So let me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll continue on our worship this morning. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we adore you as the anointed son, the eternal son of God from eternal glory who condescended to take upon yourself our humanity, our brokenness, our sin, and eventually to redeem us from it. You are the eternal one. You are the incarnate one. You are the one who died, who now lives. You are the one who's enthroned. You are the one who is coming again. You are the one who is going to reign anew upon the earth, and we will get to be there with you. We ask that you would give us hope in the midst of our crazy world that we live in, and give us the mindset of the psalmist that we wouldn't be surprised and worried, but that we would be confident in hope, and that we would be able to lead people around us to true righteousness and true hope. May your gospel go forth and gather for yourself more people into your kingdom, so that day will be even more glorious than we can imagine. And we pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen.